Yes. Five, four, three, two, one. Welcome to Up in Your Business with Carrie McCoy, a production of FlagandBanner.com. Through storytelling and conversational interviews, this weekly radio show and podcast offers listeners an insider's view into the commonalities of successful people and the ups and downs of risk-taking. And now it's time for Carrie McCoy to get all up in your business. Thank you, Sun Gray. My guest today is Gail Seymour, like I said, professor and associate dean of the College of Fine Arts and Communications at the University of Central Arkansas in Conway. Dr. Gail Seymour received her Ph.D. in art history from the University of California in Santa Barbara. Today, she teaches upper division courses in American art and women in art, but her interests are much broader. She loves researching pre-Raphaelite art, post office murals painted during the Depression, American World War II Japanese internment art, and all women artists, of course. If that's not interesting enough, Dr. Seymour, as early an age as 13, while living in England, began the hobby of collecting antique dolls. And what I find most impressive is Gail has written and received over 50 grants totaling millions of dollars, all of which have in some way contributed to everlasting social and or educational benefits for all. It is a pleasure to welcome to the table the curious, the interesting, the never-resting, brilliant Dr. Gail Seymour. Thank you. Let's start at the beginning. I like to spend kind of the first 10 minutes of the show kind of finding out about you and how you got here. So I read, I really, really loved preparing for your interview because I've never heard of the pre-Raphaelite art. The only time I've heard of Raphael was, like I said, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. I didn't know Japanese internment art even existed. And I knew about murals on post office, but I had no idea there were 1,400 post office murals painted across America, which I think is just amazing. But let's again, let's start at the beginning. You lived in England. When you were 13, but you went to college in California. Where were you born? Uh, I was born in Lexington, Kentucky, on a technicality, you might say. My, my dad got his first teaching job at the university there, and um, but I grew up in Santa Barbara, California. So I lived there, I don't know, 25 years, I guess. So how were you in England when you were 13? My dad was on sabbatical. So, you know, that's the great thing about being a college professor. You know, this nine-month-of-a-year job plus these every six or seven years you get to go off and do fun things. So my dad was on sabbatical that year. He was at the University of Reading, took the family with him, and so I got to live in England, had to go to a girls' school and wear a uniform. And Were you upset? It was hard. Yes, I was upset. How old were you when, you, when you, he moved you over there? Like I say, that was when I was 13. Oh, just that year. Just, just that, that year. Period. Just that year. Oh. And then when I um, did my doctoral dissertation, I got to live in England for a year doing that, too. So that's, you know, London is my other sort of home, I guess you could say. So you, then you went to California. So you were born in Kentucky. You went to Santa Barbara. Went to Santa Barbara. Lived there for a long time, and then came to Arkansas. How did you get to Arkansas? From Santa Barbara, California. You know, um, in the world of art history, there is literally a handful of tenure tack jobs each year. Literally a handful. So the year that I finished my PhD, and I'm a modernist, I work in 19th and 20th century art, there were three jobs that I was sort of eligible to apply for. So there was a job in Duluth, Minnesota, one in Anchorage, Alaska, and one in Conway, Arkansas. So, 
So this California girl wasn't going to go to um, you know. Alaska. <laughs> so um, so that's what happens. And I think as as an art historian, you sort of know that you're probably not going to get to live where you want to live. You're going to have to go where the job is, and that's probably okay. So that's what brought me to Conway. And how long ago was that? That was 31 years ago. Wow. Well, I didn't I mention this when, in your intro when I was introducing you, but you're the brainchild behind the Central High School 60-year reunion that happened for the Little Rock Nine. How did that idea come about? You know, um, let's see, when was it? Um, back in 20, uh, 2012, we were sitting around the office kind of like this uh, one afternoon talking about just stuff, and someone in my office said, you know, we should do an opera about the Little Rock Nine. And we all looked at each other and said, how? <laughs> okay, but how do we do it? So um, we got to work. I started writing grants and um, managed to raise a whole lot of money to do that. And then we thought that opera was going to be ready for the 60th anniversary, but things take longer than you think they should. And so two years before the 60th commemoration, I said, well, we've got to do something. And we got to do something that's maybe different from what they've done at the 40th or 50th. And so my idea, it's always my idea, is to use the arts to do anything. So I propose, why don't we create some sort of weekend of events that really try to show how the arts can be entry points into history and can be tools for social change. So that's what we did, and um, and it was amazing. I mean, absolutely amazing. We had this um, 3D mapped video that we projected on the facade of Central High. It it was. So it sounds incredible. like you with the oh, outcome. It it far exceeded anything I could have in that imagined. It was really great. And we had perfect weather. Bill Clinton spoke. Mm -hmm. Did Henry Louis Gates speak? Yes, twice, three times actually. Um, so he spoke at our Sunday evening event. We did a dance and spoken word event in the Central High Garden. And Gates, as well as Tanya Leone, the composer for the Little Rock Nine Opera, and Michael Warwick, who is the designer of that garden, they all spoke um, as part of that event. It was amazing. Then on Monday morning, uh, Gates spoke at the official city's commemoration. And then that night, on the actual anniversary date, he did a, an event for us in Conway at Reynolds Performance Hall. And we actually um, performed one scene from the opera, and it was incredible. When's the opera going to be ready? It's a good question. Uh, the, the libretto, the words are completed. Uh, Tulani Davis is our librettist, and the words are amazing. So that's the first piece, birthing this thing. But then the next thing is bringing it to the stage, and that's big money, uh, Another grant? <laughs> Many grants. And so whether it whether it's us who does that or whether it's the artist, because the opera is the property of the artist. doesn't belong to me. doesn't belong to UCA. And who's the artist? Uh, Tanya Leone. Is she local? New York. So at any rate, so we don't know. It's, it's a little bit up in the air in terms of where that will premiere, what opera company will take it on. And You're gonna, she's going to shop it, actually, I guess, I'm probably. Sure. I'm sure. So anyway, so we're excited, and we've gotten lots of interest in it, and I think it's going to be. I think it's going to be. Of all the grants the you've written, and then we're going to go to break. But of all the grants you've written, what's been your favorite one that you felt like accomplished exactly what you wanted the most? I think this Central High project that we just did is is the work of my career. I really do. I think we did really amazing things that were almost not doable. I mean, they were so 
that were so risky, you know, that that's really the thing. And it was sort of a contest to see if we could actually pull this off, if we could raise the money, because it was big money to do the kind of art programming that we envisioned. And we did it. So um, I think that's one of the things. You know, I've also done a lot of grants for historic preservation, and those of are what? All, um, all of our historic buildings at UCA. Mm. So, uh, you know, we put seven our build, of our buildings on the National Register of Historic Places, and then we, I wrote grants to uh, renovate them so that they can continue to tell their story. You're going to stay in Arkansas forever? Oh, probably. Oh, she's an Arkansan. <laughs> this is a great place to take a break. When we come back, we're going to delve into Dr. Gail Seymour's knowledge of post office murals as part of Roosevelt's New Deal, Japanese internment art after World War II, the lost but newly found pre Raphaelite art, and the business of being a collector, more specifically, a doll collector. And you didn't call it collecting, you called it a social historian. A doll social historian. I like that. <laughs> Before the break here on Up In Your Business with Carrie McCoy, let's hear from the composer of the Little Rock Nine opera, Tanya Leone, and her relationship with Henry Louis Gates in writing the music after seeing his words and being inspired by a member of the Little Rock Nine. Henry Louis Gates had become now the historian and the research historian behind the opera because of the amount of work that he has. So, I mean, maybe my idea of uh, Elizabeth Eckert is not Elizabeth, but is what Elizabeth elicited in me, you see? So the music that I create is my music, is the music in response to the words, and it's response about thinking of her, and it's response about seeing her body language, and it's response about meeting her, because I met her when I was in Little Rock. I met her now as a woman, you know, with a lot of wisdom. But as I was talking to her, I was having in the back of my mind all of this that this woman had gone through at that time of her life. She was very open and very, you know, we related to each other in a very, very warm way. And here's a sample of some of Tanya Leone's work. Although this piece is not from the Little Rock Nine opera, it is from a piece she wrote called Tumbeo, performed by Jennifer Perringer. Audio courtesy of Democracy Now! on YouTube. Back in a moment on Up In Your Business with Carrie McCoy. You try and try and try to get attention for your business or for an organization of some kind. You know what flagandbanner.com has that'll help you get to that goal? String pennants. They're perfect for attracting attention. And we have a huge selection of colorful pennant flags. You can use them for festival gatherings, pennant lines, car dealerships use them all the time. Pennant crowd control barriers, American flag pennant barriers. If you're looking for a patriotic display that's unique. It's one of those things you might not think about that flagandbanner.com is expert at. And commercial string pennants are very valuable. Got a grand opening coming up? We got you covered. Are you a pharmacy getting ready to handle big crowds for COVID vaccines? String pennants can keep things organized. Flagandbanner.com. Ask us for advice. We're here to help. Here's a special announcement from flagandbanner.com. 
Honoring the newest branch of the U.S. Armed Forces, FlagandBanner.com now stocks an entire array of official United States Space Force flags. And there's a discount code currently available. Please check it out at FlagandBanner.com. You're listening to Up In Your Business with me, Carrie McCoy. I'm speaking today with Dr. Gail Seymour, Professor and Associate Dean for the College of Fine Arts and Communications at the University of Central Arkansas in Conway. Before before we went on the show, I was like, why is it arts and communications when it used to be arts and humanities? And you said it's been lots of things, but it's all the same, isn't it? No. I mean, art is communicating. That's right. Art is humanities. It is human nature. That's right. Is there, an, is there another one? It, it just depends. Oh. Different universities do it oh, different ways. I get you. All right. This is the one I really went to first when I started researching all the stuff that you're an expert at. You studied America's post office murals that were painted during the Depression era as part of Franklin D. Roosevelt's New Deal. How did they come up with that idea? What was its goal? And did it work? So this is a really fascinating chapter of... American art history that nobody knows much about. Um, Beginning in 1934, uh, just a couple of guys in Washington, D.C. had this idea that Americans' cultural level needed to be elevated somehow. And they had this brilliant idea to make the post office America's art gallery. And then they really kind of thought, well, now how are we going to fund this? How are we going to pay for all of this? It was the Depression, after all. And so they invented what's known today as percent for art. So what did you call it? Percent for art. So what that means is that they were building a new post office in Piggott, Arkansas, and they were going to reserve 1% of the construction budget for art in that post office. Brilliant. Um, so, so typically, those post offices cost about... $70,000. In the 1930s. Yeah. So that meant that the artist got about $700. I mean, it was not a, not a whole lot of money. Um, but it was a brilliant idea. Again, and I think about places like Arkansas, where there really weren't art museums at that time, and people might have never seen an original work of art before, ever. And to have an artist come, and they weren't local artists. They weren't just the little old lady down the street who painted on the sides. Um, They did national design competitions, and they had artists coming from all over the place to paint these murals. And then the other thing that was really innovative is that they realized that they needed buy-in on the local level. And it wasn't just enough to bring in some artists from New York and impose their idea on the little community. So the artists had to actually work with the local people and figure out what they wanted in their mural. So you can say they are community-specific. And so this is really the recipe for contemporary public art today. This is really how public art happens today when it, when it works, that there's buy-in on the local level, that it's funded in this sort of creative way, and that people feel a part of it. And all of this was, you know, pioneered during the Great Depression. So nine years only this program existed. It shut down when World War II started. And just a handful of guys in Washington, D.C. managed to commission 1,400 murals. It, it's an extraordinary, an extraordinary achievement. How many artists? Um, that's a good question. I don't know that I know the number. I would say it's probably somewhere around seven or 800 artists. Did 1,400? 1,400 murals. The other thing that's interesting, since they were anonymous design competitions, 
women manage to break into the art field in, in, a, in a new way. So uh, in Arkansas, there are 21 murals, and five of the murals were done by women. And that's, that's a lot. <laughs> and uh, so, so at any rate, they're, they're really kind of interesting works of art where the poor artist, you know, they had to make the guys in Washington happy. They, this is basically New Deal propaganda, you know, they don't show people starving and in misery. They show people working, you know, cooperatively, and everyone's well-fed and well-dressed and all this kind of stuff. They also realized that the government was only going to fund um, what I would call safe art, representational art that people could understand. And so if you were an artist, these might not be things you wanted to really mess with. You know, it was kind of interesting for an artist to you know, decide to take this kind of a project on. And so what you find out in a lot of these murals is that the artists were willing to play the game, to paint section. This was funded by the Section of Fine Arts. But often they sort of slipped in little subtle things that the censors in Washington missed. Like what? Oh, there's a famous mural in um, Wynn, Arkansas, that shows African-American cotton pickers. And there is one woman in the center, this large woman, standing in pure profile, and she has her mouth open as if singing. And the mural is probably a reference to Marian Anderson, who had just sung on the steps of the of Lincoln Memorial uh, when the Daughters of the American Revolution forbid her to sing elsewhere. And really a, a kind of mural where the artist is saying, um, you know, here it is, you know. and but. The average person might not have realized what this artist was referring to. And that mural was done by a woman, too, by the way. A little controversy. Yeah, it's good stuff. Are there any left besides that one? Oh, yeah. I think Arkansas still has 19 of their murals. One never actually got delivered. Um, what do you mean? They're painted right there on the wall. They're not. How do they... They're not. And that's the other thing that was really... They weren't painted in place? No. And, this, you know, again, th this whole process was a kind of trying to figure out how to, how, to, how to get around the logistics of it. So what they realized is that they couldn't have their post office filled up with scaffolding for months while an artist painted a picture. So they're all painted on canvas in the artist's studio, and then the artist had to bring it to the site and basically glue it onto the wall using a mixture of white lead and varnish. So, so that was also kind of a masterstroke of how to, how to make this work, how, how to actually do this. So are they indoors or outdoors? They're indoors. I thought they were outdoors for some reason. They're indoors. They're inside the lobby. All of them. Of the post office. They're all in the same place. They're over the postmaster's door, and um, that's where they are. And they're what size? Up um, they're generally about 12 feet wide by about 6 feet high, so they're not giant, but they're still within the mural sort of scale. It's probably the width of the fabric. If you're painting it on well, canvas, it probably came 6 foot wide, and they're like, all right, all of them are going to be 6 feet wide. So I read when I was kind of reading about this to get ready for the show that Arkansans weren't real happy of how the Arkansans were portrayed right. because they were kind of portrayed as country bumpkins That's right. and the people wanted them to be portrayed more with hope of the future so mm -hmm. that future generations would see and think about where they were going to not where they were but where they were going to go to that's a true story and that's the story of the paris post office mural and um 
One of the things that you had to do to get in this program was to submit sketches as you work through the process. So you would send in these sketches and people would have a chance to sort of say yes or no or edit or whatever. And so um, what happened in Paris Post Office um, is that the artist created this sketch of a hillbilly farmer um, who was plowing a field and didn't even have enough sense to hitch the plow up to a mule. Oh. And... Um, and people got mad, and they wrote to their senators and said, no, we don't want this, and the artist said, okay, and he completely redid it, completely, oh. completely repainted the mural so that it showed everybody with it and with the latest technology and farming and mining and all kinds of Have stuff. Have they all been preserved, or are they falling into disrepair? They are in remarkably good condition for primarily because they're up high on the wall and they're just out of people's reach. Um, they're also painted with oil on canvas, and oil is a very sturdy medium, and they're in pretty good shape, except for a few where stupid people do stupid things to them, like try to pull the thing off the wall and just basically tear wow. it up. But um, Why would they try to do that? Well... Want to move it? They wanted to move it, and you know, the, the issue, you know, it's like living in a historic building, something mm -hmm. you know all too well. Yeah. They're not handicap accessible, these old post offices. Oh. And, um, you know, people want new buildings. They don't want those old buildings. They're, you know, they're not big enough. They don't, whatever. And so typically these towns get a new post office, and then they have to figure out what to do with the old building. Mm -hmm. And um, so they say, well, let's just tear this mural off the wall. So if I wanted to go and do a mural uh, drive and mm -hmm. kind of do a tour of the murals in Arkansas, mm -hmm. is there a map or a place that I could? There is. We we have all of this on our website at UCA. Where? Give us the well, pearl. Well, you know, I don't know exactly off the top of my head, but if you go to the art department um, page of the UCA, uca.edu, mm -hmm. um, there is a, a tab where you'll see the post office mural information. Did you do all that research? I did, and my students, we, we worked on all of that. We went to Washington, D.C. and dug out all the archival materials from the National Archives. How long did that take? Oh, it took a long time. <laughs> How many different students did you have to oh, go? Years. Years. Generations of students have worked on that. So That's pretty neat. It's pretty cool. Um, and preservation. Is there anything going on to preserve them? We got any grants to preserve them? Um, Does anybody care? Is, I mean, do people care about those? People sort of care, but they don't really care. I don't think people know enough to care. They don't. And after all, it's just some old mural in some old building. Gosh. You know, wh why would anybody want that, right? No, and, um, no, wrong. I know. So... So over the last few years, you know, I'm kind of the lone voice in the desert talking about this. And, um, for instance, Dardanelle, which has a very important mural, they've recently cleaned their mural. So they're really a community that I think understands the importance of historic buildings, historic history, history in general, yeah. and have find, found ways to kind of connect that old stuff to today. And that's, that's the secret. That's the hard part. Well, Europe's been doing it. I think we can figure it out. Well, what I would love to do with, with some grants is create some kind of a virtual reality um, thing to go along with the murals. Tour. A virtual reality tour yeah. of the murals. Yeah. Mm. So you could really kind of step back to 1938 or whenever and really see what that post office really looked like back then and what the cars looked like that were driving in front of it and, you know, kind of really go back and then the other thing we could easily do is create little kiosks in these post offices with a touch screen, and you could learn about the mural and about the artist, and then you could find where the next town is and oh, so on and so forth. Oh, that'd be fun. So 
It's easy. I mean, we could do it. What's that virtual tour um, that I have out front of Arkansas flag? And the Man? Arkansas Isn't Civil Rights a, History uh, Tour. Isn't it like a QR code? It's, that you, yeah, that it's, you it's a, a cell phone of, app. It's an app. Yeah. So you but, could do that. But we're talking about, you know, these things you put, these glasses things that you put your cell phone in and you can actually, oh, you can actually look. Reality. Yeah, 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 yeah. There you go. Yep. So let's go to the pre-Raphaelite art. How do you say that? Pre-Raphaelite. Pre-Raphaelite. All right. <laughs> Explain to everybody what pre-Raphaelite art is. Okay. Because I tried to before the show, and you just kept shaking your head no. All right. Well, it's, it's really pretty easy. The pre-Raphaelites were a group of artists in England um, who were born around 1849, and they were sick of the art of Raphael and what came after. And, of course, Raphael lived in the early 16th century and he's during the Renaissance. And he's a turtle. teenage mutant ninja turtle. And they felt that art in their day was just too overproduced, basically. And they, want, they wanted something that was more honest, more sincere. And they thought that the art before Raphael, the art of the 15th century, the art of Frangelico and artists who were monks and others who really were making this sincere art, they thought that's what art should be like. And so they called themselves the Pre-Raphaelites, and they signed their paintings PRB, which was sort of a secret society. These artists were only 17, 19, and 21 at the time, so they were young kids, basically. And so their goal was to revive English art that they really thought was in the doldrums. Um, their art is often highly narrative, lots of detail, lots of symbolism, often inspired by... Uh, literature, that kind of thing. What do you mean highly narrative? Um, you know, where you, you really are literally meant to read the painting as you oh. would a book. You know, some art is really more evocative, you know. It just might make you feel something or have just, you know, an experience of colors, shapes, and lines. But narrative art really has this kind of linear story that you're supposed to be able to read through the painting itself. And that's often the way their art was put together because they were they probably did want to be underground because they were kind of going up against the royal academy of they arts. were definitely the royal academy was telling them how to make this art that they didn't want to make that mm -hmm. was too over and that's what was being taught in yes, school exactly and so they were kind of trying to buck the system exactly isn't that what art's always been trying to do though that's it you know it's the great pendulum of art it is swings back and forth i think that's why i love art <laughs> what about um you said that you have discovered something. What well, is that? I'm, you this, didn't this tell is, me. Well, this has been actually a few years ago. Um, one of the pre-Raphaelite artists is an artist by the name of Edward Byrne Jones. And, um, gosh, um, I was giving a lecture on pre-Raphaelite art over at Hendrix, and a woman presented herself after the lecture, and she said, well, I have a painting by Byrne Jones. And I said, sure you do. <laughs> And what art historians know about Byrne Jones is that he kept a notebook. It's in the o Oxford Ashmolean Museum, a, a list of every painting he'd ever created. And we all know that every one of those paintings is accounted for except for one. No. Yes. And so I, you know, had enough sense to at least talk to this woman and sort of follow up. And sure enough, it was the missing Byrne Jones painting. And what's kind of remarkable about this story is that this woman had inherited the painting from her mother, 
who in the 1950s bought this painting in New York City at Mortimer Brandt, which was a, a, a really kind of established gallery that sold major paintings to major museums. And she spent $600 on it, um, which was in those days three times too much. So she uh... so she bought this painting. Her family apparently ridiculed her, and apparently she bought the painting because it matched a red and green chair that she had. Well, of course. <laughs> <sighs> And so, um, any rate, so... How much is it worth? It actually sold at auction. She sold it. Um, it, She she was deceased by the time that I saw the painting. The family sold it. Um, But it it sold for over a million dollars. But who was it that came to see you after the... Did she buy it for the million dollars? So the woman that came up to you after... Was the daughter. Was the daughter. Mm-hmm. And so the daughter sold it. Yes. After, she, after you told her what she had, yes. she's the one that said, I yes. think I'll go get yes. this appraised and sell yes. it. So at any rate, it was, it was kind of remarkable. You know, I think this was 1998 when this happened. And in 1998, um, they had the Burne Jones Centenary Exhibition, you know, the exhibition 100 years after the death of the artist at the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York City. And so here was this, here was this lost Burne Jones that... Um, that you told her what she had. Yeah. You're the person that said, you have no idea what you have. That's a great story. <laughs> That's a really, really great story. Um, you know, art really matters. It does. And when we come back, I'm going to have you tell us why. Because I bet you got a good thing to say about that. It's a great place to take a break. When we come back, Dr. Gail Seymour's knowledge of American-Japanese internment art for world after World War II, which I think is going to be really, really interesting. And we'll get her to talk about collecting, uh, being a collector, more specifically doll collecting. Here's a message from Dreamland Ballroom. Upstairs in Taborian Hall, home of flagandbanner.com. When a great organization serving a great community issues a new mission statement, that's a big deal. And the Friends of Dreamland has one. Friends of Dreamland celebrates the community of historic West 9th Street, shares the legacy of Dreamland Ballroom, and preserves the original intent of Taborian Hall. Let's break that down. Celebrate the community. The men and women that lived, worked, and played in the West 9th Street neighborhood faced brutal social stigma every day, but thrived. We'll never forget this and we'll always celebrate it. Share the legacy. There's no doubt that the most fun and fascinating facet of the history of Dreamland Ballroom are all the legends that graced the Dreamland stage. Unfortunately, it's taken only one generation to almost completely forget this great history. It promotes pride in our hometown when we remember it. We have a major legacy to live up to and a lot of work ahead of us. But we plan to move forward. See how you can help develop the new mission statement into reality. Visit dreamlandballroom.org. Mona Lisa, Mona Lisa, men have named you. You're so like the lady with a mystic smile. Nat King Cole sang at the Dreamland Ballroom. That was a good song. You're listening to Up In Your Business with me, Carrie McCoy. I'm speaking today with De- with Dr. Gail Seymour, professor and associate dean for the College of Fine Arts and Communication at the University of Central Arkansas in Conway. All right, Japanese internment art. 
Never heard of that term till I met you when you came to see me about the Central High Museum and you asked Arkansas Flag and Banner to help do banners for that. And I met you and found out you collect dolls and all these interesting things. And so when I was went in there and was researching you this week, went into the Internet and was researching you and all this interesting stuff you do, explain to our listeners what Japanese internment art is. All right. Um, when... Um Pearl Harbor happens. Um, Japanese Americans are instantly dangerous to America, according to the federal government. And so federal, um, President Roosevelt signs Executive Order 9066, which says all persons of Japanese descent shall be removed from the West Coast. So almost overnight, it's it's a remarkable logistical feat, if nothing else. Um, about 120,000 ja- Americans of Japanese descent were removed to 10 internment camps in America. The most far east ones are two in Arkansas, in South Arkansas, in two little towns called Rower and Jerome. So internment camp art is the art that's produced by inmates, if you will, of Mm. these internment camps. And it is kind of fascinating, really, that one of the first things they did when they got to these camps was to think about the arts and um, to think about the power of the arts, whether it was in garden design or, you know, they had to build furniture. They had to just do all kinds of stuff to just make life somewhat bearable. Um, And they spent a lot of time making art. It's, It's pretty fascinating. So in Arkansas, especially at the Rower Camp, um, there were two things that were happening simultaneously. One is there was a Caucasian teacher who was the art teacher there, Miss Jameson, and she really worked with her students and really, you know, really used the arts to somehow help these poor individuals <laughs> under these terrible circumstances. She saved this art and she gave it to her friend Rosalie Gould, who was in the 1980s the mayor of McGee, Arkansas. And Mrs. Gould saved this art all of these years. Are they paintings? Paintings, all kinds of things. Craft, just arts and crafts of all kinds. Mostly painting, though, mostly fine art. With, like, oils? Yeah, well, they're, they're, or acrylics? That's the other issue. There's a lot of sort of scrounging that went on. Uh, you know, there weren't a lot of materials to make this art. So there are some paintings that were done on... Um, like the end bolts of like denim fabric and things like that, you know, that somebody must have donated. Um, So anyway, so this art has been given to the Butler Center in Little Rock, and people can see a lot of it today. It's often on display down there, and it really constitutes one of the largest collections of internment art um, anywhere. In America. Anywhere, yeah. The other thing that was going on in Rower is that there was a famous California artist by the name of Henry Sugimoto who was in Rower, and he started making art that I would call evidentiary art. Um, I borrowed that term from the study of Holocaust art, which has some interesting parallels. Again, this idea of making art under terrible circumstances um, and somehow trying to create art that sort of documents things that happened. You know, I saw this. I was present. This really happened. It's probably a way for them to process Exactly. It and also, though, I think to kind of save this history so that people would know that these things really did take place. So Henry Sugimoto's art is really powerful stuff. Uh, most of it's in California in the National Japanese American Museum there. 
Um, but one big painting is at Hendricks College that Sugimoto did, and this is also an interesting story. Um, one of the post office mural artists, Louis Friend, who actually started the art department at Hendricks, I think in 1938, found out that Henry Sugimoto was down in Rower, Arkansas, and somehow made, um, made it possible for him to get out of the camps, to come up to Conway, and to have an exhibition of his art at Hendricks College. And what year was this? This would have been uh, 44, I think, 1943-44, somewhere in that time pan, period. That's just an amazing part of history that you can round all It is amazing. Up. And, you know, this was really kind of a secret. I don't think people really knew this was going on. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, why did they pick the most remote places in America to put, put them if they really weren't trying to keep it as a secret? And I can't really prove it, but I have the feeling that that exhibition in Conway of this evidentiary art that Sugimoto was creating was really one of the first times that Americans actually got a glimpse of what was going on behind barbed wire. Um, it, it's an extraordinary thing. How long did they have to stay in those internment camps? Um, three years. And then they'd lost their homes by the time they they'd got out. They'd lost everything. Mm -hmm. And they lost their dignity. They, they lost everything and they were still the enemy where were they going to go after mm -hmm. it was over it was difficult to go back to california because um, there were still a lot of bad feelings and you know one of the things that i think historians have sort of shown is that it was sort of an opportunity to do kind of a land grab um you know oh. you know there, there were lots of places in california that the japanese americans had farmed successfully and really sort of tamed the land Established and themselves. Established as. themselves, and this was sort of a, a, a great opportunity to, to snatch it back. Um, and so it, it's, it's really one of the great, great tragedies, I think, in American history. The, the wall of shame, as I call it. I mean, it's, mm -hmm. it, it's really a really remarkable thing. Mm. Um, so we've got two internment camps were here, mm -hmm. and they were so large that they were ranked the fifth and sixth largest town in Arkansas. Isn't that crazy? That's how big they were. Overnight. 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 So we're talking about... Are they still left? Are those internment camps still left anywhere? They, if you were to go say, I want to go see what one looked like. They're, they're still there, but there's not much to see. If, if somebody wants to go see them, and I think they should, I think you really have to stand on that ground in and, order to... And it's in Rower and Jerome. Right. And I would go to the Rower camp. There's a little bit more there. At Rower, there is... Spell Rower. R-O-H-W-E-R. -E mm -hmm. um, at Rower, there is a cemetery. I mean, how poignant is that? Can you imagine dying in the Rower internment camp? Um, and don't forget, a lot of these people that were older had children who were fighting on behalf of America in the U.S. military. And, you know, it, you know, the whole thing is just, it's it's just, just, a, it's just humans are mind-boggling, aren't we? <laughs> <laughs> so, and then the other thing that's at Rower, um, George Takei, who was an internee at Rower, I think he was five years old when he first was taken to Rower, um, he's done some sort of oral interpretation. So there's some little kiosks, and you push the button, and you get to hear George Takei sort of narrating various aspects of the camp. We were citizens of this country. We had nothing to do with the war. Uh, we ha simply happened to look like the people that bombed Pearl Harbor. But without charges, without trial, without due process, we were summarily rounded up and... Uh, 
sent off to 10 barbed wire internment camps, prison camps really, with sentry towers, machine guns pointed at us, and our family was sent two-thirds of the way across the country, the farthest east, in the swamps of Arkansas. It, and it's from this experience that uh, when I was a teenager, my father told me that our democracy is very fragile, but it is a true people's democracy, both as strong and as great as a people can be, but it is also as fallible as people are. And that's why good people have to be actively engaged in the process, sometimes holding democracy's feet to the fire in order to make it a better, truer democracy. But when you go there today, it's just a giant cotton field, um, you know, cotton as far as you can see. But you can also see it's really great to go there in the middle of summer and try to imagine the incredible heat that these individuals... From California to Arkansas, that just doesn't seem right, does it? Yeah. They had such beautiful weather out there. Yeah. And then uh, two PBS has made a documentary, A Time of Fear explores the history of these two American concentration camps in Arkansas, which I have not seen that. There's also another documentary called Relocation Arkansas, and it's uh, it's really about what happened to the internees after they let them out, and Uh, it's really extraordinary. They probably uh, succeeded again. They did. Yeah, some people are just like that. You're listening to Up In Your Business with me, Carrie McCoy. I'm speaking today with Dr. Gail Seymour, Professor of Associate Dean of the College of Fine Arts and Communications at the University of Central Arkansas in Conway. We've only got 10 minutes left, so we're going to talk about how you started collecting dolls at the age of 13, and how did that come about? <laughs> and it's not called, you don't call it collecting dolls. I forgot what you called it again. I'm writing it down. I'm a social historian of dolls. Social historian of dolls. Okay. <laughs> How did that, I bet you didn't call it that when you were a kid. No, I didn't. Well, you know, if I can rewind my tape, it seems to me that what happened when I was 13 was that my mother decided I needed a hobby. Now, I don't think I was a bad kid. In fact, I know I wasn't. But my mother just had this idea that hobbies were really important, especially to develop early on so that you could do it over a lifetime. And it would give you something in your retirement and whatnot, you know. So for whatever reason, my mother took me down to an antique store in Santa Barbara and said, pick something out. And I'm like, okay. (laughs) So who knows what she was thinking. And um, so I picked out this doll, and my fate was sealed at at that moment. But that was in California. That was in California. So that was right before we went to England that year. And oh, so, maybe she knew that was coming and knew it was going to be hard on you. You wanted to have your little friend over there with Well, you. no, no, I don't think so. I don't think so at all. But I do think that being over there gave me the opportunity to really see a lot of old, do- old, old dolls. Old. And, you know, it really kind of opened up, you know, avenues to collect things. How many dolls do you have? Well, I don't know. 125? <laughs> More. I don't know how many, 200? but it's many hundreds. Many hundreds. Do you trade them? No. You keep them? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Do you go and you look at them? Uh-huh. <laughs> Does your husband hate it? No. He doesn't? No. He's a good man. He's a good guy. Do you have like a whole room full of them? Uh, no. No. They're in cabinets in various locations. I guess you have to keep them room temperature. That's very important, mm-hmm. especially certain kinds of dolls. You Right after I met you in September, you sent me a picture of a doll you had just gotten. Yes. And I'm trying to remember. I should have looked it up before I came here. And you were excited about it. Why was that doll such a good doll? I can't remember. I found a doll at a 
flea market in Little Rock um, that was probably from around the 1870s, made by a French company called Jules Steiner. And it's an incredibly rare doll. It has a bisque head. What's that mean? Bisque is um, unglazed ceramic. So it looks kind of like skin. It looks or kind of like marble, really, is what it looks like. And so, anyway, I found this doll, and it's very, very valuable. She and, didn't have a dress on, if I remember, though. Well, she had on a new dress, and I, the picture I took was to show you this very unique body construction um, that this doll had. Um, normally, a bisque doll has a cloth body with bisque arms and legs, and then this bisque head. But this one is unusual because it's got this sort of hip section that's also made out of bisque. It's called a Munchman-type body. And it's incredibly rare, and I've never seen one before except in books, and never thought I would have one, certainly. And uh, so it's, it was exciting. Yes, I was thrilled to send you that picture. <laughs> so you just go out flea market, just go, you know, junk tinking, and you look for dolls uh, on your weekends or yeah. just whenever. And you saw this doll. Mm -hmm. Was it expensive? No, it was really cheap. <laughs> How much would it be if you were to sell it? Oh, I don't know. It's hard to say, but I think it's probably in the five to six thousand dollar. And you bought it for twenty dollars. Well, I'm not going to tell you how much. <laughs> <laughs> and you don't sell any of these. Not very often. Have you ever taken any of them to the antique roadshow? No. So no. how do you find out the price of something if you're a collector? I went and googled up collecting dolls, and I am amazed how many people collect dolls. There's a whole group of people that love to collect dolls. How do you know what a price of a doll is? Well, you know, any kind of antique or collectible is only worth what somebody's willing to pay for it. Sure. And so I think the best barometer of what somebody's willing to pay for it is eBay. So it's a process of being knowledgeable about dolls because you have to know what it's called in order to look it up, right? So you have to know the names and whatnot. And then just looking up on eBay and seeing what the market says these things are worth. So if I wanted to get into the doll collecting, mm -hmm. how would I start? I don't know. be hard. Really? Well, you know, it's like any kind of collecting. You, you have know, to read you, a lot, I guess. You've got to read a lot, and you've got to love it. You've got to be passionate about yeah, it. Yeah, you got to love it. Isn't that funny that your mother, is your mother not still alive that no. you'd ask her why, you, <laughs> why she knew you'd be passionate about dolls? I don't think she ever thought I would pick out a doll. I mean, it wasn't that she took me down there to buy a doll. She just took me down there to buy something. Oh, I see. Yeah. So, so who knows? So what, do you, what are your plans for all your, and you collect other things, don't you? I have, that's the problem with being a collector. There's You know, endless, there's a word for that. It's called hoarding. No, it's... <laughs> But, but, you know, really, for me as an art historian, dolls are part of this visual culture that we mm -hmm. talk a lot about with mm -hmm. art, art history. And, um, you know, dolls reveal a lot about what people thought was important. And dolls are a way to um, control society. And, and they're crafts. I mean, they're, they were handmade forever. Yes and no. A lot of these were highly manufactured dolls, even in the 19th century. Really? Oh, yeah. I would have thought that they would be hand. No. They would have to be handmade. No. The, some of the most valuable dolls were made in France in the late 19th century, and there were entire stores just devoted to these dolls with every kind of clothing accessory you can imagine, kind of like Barbie dolls about 100 mm. years earlier, and um, highly, you know. Do you think Barbie dolls are worth collecting? Yes. I have a girl at my office who collected them for a while. 
got to collect the right kind, though. If you buy one of the things to, for your collectors out there is don't collect collector's items. Oh, if they say collectors, that's not a collector. That's a good tip. Yeah. It, you know, the, the things that are valuable are the things that actually were toys for children. That, that were used. That were used, and they shouldn't have survived. I mean, if you think about a collection, it's 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 a toy that was a failure because some kid didn't really play with it and tear it up, you know. So um, so that's my tip for collecting if you're starting out. Don't buy collector's items. Why does art matter? That's a big question. That's a huge question. That's an excellent question. Art matters because it's really evidence of humanity. And artists are very special people that need to be cherished. And um, artists have the ability to show us ourselves and what's important. If you look at the great themes in art, it's love, death hate, you know, these, these really deep and meaningful things. And artists are the ones that, you know, allow us to kind of meditate on, on these big things. I think art truly matters for the human condition. I heard someone the other day say, uh, it amplifies your ability to be human by understanding how others have been human. Mm-hmm. And it seems like artists are uh, really tapped into being human mm-hmm. and those deep emotions that some of us maybe won't let ourselves get to or touch on, but then we can kind of see it in their art some for some somehow. And art's so subjective. You know, the art I love is not necessarily the art that somebody else will love. But isn't that great? It is. And I used to think when I was young that you every that you know uh, that you had to be connoisseur of art but you really don't everybody is and what speaks to you can speak to somebody else different. and doesn't have to be expensive that's right anything can be and besides you might find a masterpiece you sure might because i watch the antique road show and there are <laughs> lots of people that find masterpieces <laughs> i love you being on today thank you so much thank you i knew gentlemen this was going to be interesting am i right okay you radio people out there they're all nodding y'all can't hear this there i got a word (laughs) (laughs) this is your gift today it's a desk set for you and i didn't realize you were only in the uk one year and that you were in california a long time so for our listeners i gave her a u.s flag desk set with an arkansas flag because you are and i should have given you california but i gave you the uk it's beautiful thank you very much i appreciate that i have to mail you a united kingdom one you can stick in there with this I mean, a California one that you can put in there with this. Uh, if anybody out there has a great entrepreneurial story that you would like to share, I'd love to hear from you. Send a brief bio and your contact info to questions at upyourbusiness.org, and someone will be in touch. And finally, to our listeners, thank you for spending time with me. If you think this program's been about you, you're right, but it's also been for me. Thank you for letting me fulfill my destiny. My hope today is that you've heard or learned something that's been inspiring or enlightening, and that it, whatever it is, will help you up your business, your independence, or your life. I'm Carrie McCoy, and I'll see you next time on Up In Your Business. Until then, be brave and keep it up. You've been listening to Up In Your Business with Carrie McCoy. For links to resources you heard discussed on today's show, go to flagandbanner.com, select radio, and choose today's guest. If you'd like to sponsor this show or any show, contact me, gray at flagandbanner.com. That's G-R-A-Y at flagandbanner.com. All interviews are recorded and posted the following week. Stay informed of exciting upcoming guests by subscribing to our YouTube channel or podcasts wherever you like to listen. Carrie's goal is simple, to help you 
Live the American Dream.